The soaring cost of special needs education has prompted a government review of the whole system. Last year, we spent $1.68 billion on special needs education, exceeding the $1.58 billion we spend on higher education. Amid claims that some children are being diagnosed inappropriately just to get resource teaching hours, and that one in four children may have some kind of physical, learning, intellectual or behavioural difficulty, we're taking a talking point look at how and why we diagnose children and if and how the cost of helping them should be controlled. In studio this morning, Carlo Bryan is the education editor of the Irish Times. Coleman Nocter is child and adolescent psychotherapist at St. Patrick's Hospital. Lorraine Dempsey is chairperson of the Special Needs Parents Association. And on the line is Labour Party TD and former Minister for Education, Jan O'Sullivan. Um, Carlo Bryan, will you set the scene for us, please, in how this situation has come about? Sure. Well, last week, the Department of Public Expenditure published the spending review and Remember, the public expenditure's sole obsession is controlling costs for government. And uh, while it doesn't use the word alarm, certainly within circles in government, there is alarm and concern at what they would label the soaring cost of expense on special education. As you said, we're spending more on special education now than we do on uh, higher level education. The increase has been to the tune of 260% since 2004 Uh, Since 2011 alone, it's been a rise of 38%. Um, A lot of the concern within circles of government focuses particularly on special needs assistance. And there's been a big jump there between 2011 and 2016 alone. Uh, There has been, um, I think, an increase in the order of um, up to 50% in the, the numbers in this area. So, so they're, they're big figures. So, so that, that's the background to it. It's worth bearing in mind, this is a one-sided picture, you know, so this is Department of Public Expenditure. So uh, the other side of the picture the report doesn't go into is, well, what are the benefits for children? What's the return to the state? Uh, are we meeting our, you know, human and children rights obligations? So it doesn't go into that. So it is a one-sided picture. And it also doesn't really mention is that we've been coming from a very, very low base. You know, I started writing about education and special needs back in the late 1990s. That time was characterised by a series of high-profile court cases like the Cathy Sinnott case, the Marie O'Donoghue case. And the O'Donoghue case was very interesting at the time. The state was arguing, hard it is to believe, that certain categories of special needs children were ineducable. Now, we've come light years from that point, from, from you know the, the mid to late 1990s. So there was always going to be a huge rise in the level of expenditure and special needs. So we've been playing catch-up, you know. I think the state has been playing catch-up, but also parents have been playing catch-up because there's much greater awareness too among parents around what constitutes special needs or additional needs. So I think this is the backdrop to which this report is being played out. Yeah, so Jan O'Sullivan, a big change was 2004. There was an Education for Persons with Special Education Needs Act. And that was the one that said, look, every child is entitled to be educated in an inclusive environment, you know, rather than being excluded off into some special school, unless it's not in their best interests. Concern did start within this in the Department of Education in 2011. So it covered your period as minister. Um, You were minister in 2014. What is your reading of the situation and the increase in costs? Yeah, well, first of all, I agree with Carl that we were coming from a very low base and it has been really important to put in resources into this whole area. And I also um, completely support the, uh, the 2004 
reasoning that uh, children with special learning difficulties should be where possible in the mainstream school system. And for example, we have, um, I think there are about a thousand special classes now attached to mainstream schools. Um, and also, obviously, the supports the children then get in the regular classrooms as well. Um, but there was a policy uh, advice published by the National Council for Special Education back in 2013, which indicated that the current model, and this is just about resource teaching now, this mm. isn't about SNAs, um, that it was potentially inequitable. Uh, and also that the outcomes, you know, may not be um, as good as, as the, the amount of money that was going in. So that review then, and that they consulted widely at the time, and that came to me then as minister, and uh, we adopted the policy that the, that we should um, reform the model. And um, that's essentially what Minister Bruton has now announced is, is yeah. coming in. Now, in that, what, now, there are a lot of things driving this. Um, one of the things, and I think the inequitability that you've referred to was that parents in wealthier areas who could afford to get a private diagnosis of a child were then able to secure the resource teaching. And then in poorer areas where parents couldn't afford to do that and were perhaps on a waiting list, they couldn't get that diagnosis. But my understanding was there was opposition to you changing that system at the time, you know, and you had to kind of shelve it and say, oh, we need more consultation. What was the resistance that you came up against? Well, th- there was, there is a real problem, or was a real problem, first of all, with people not being able to afford to get these expensive private diagnoses, which bought, um, if you like, access to, to people who had more money. Um, but we, um, I mean, we did actually intend to introduce it uh, a year earlier, but uh, there were a couple of things um, first of all, we didn't have uh, the agreement between. Uh, it gets this gets a little bit complicated. Yeah. But there are complex needs uh, for specific children that uh, the HSE had data on, uh, and they would have had that data from maybe from when the child was born or in their early years. So we needed to coordinate that data with the data that the National Council for Special Education had. So in other words, if you know a child, uh, basically the new model is based on a profile of the needs of the school. Um, but in some cases, there would be children with particular needs and maybe with you know, a need for significant supports in the school. And that needed to be built into the system as well. So that a child in that situation, even if their school generally didn't have huge needs, that child obviously does have a need. So that needed to be uh, put into the system. And that hadn't been, uh, that hadn't been fully worked out uh, when we originally intended to introduce the new system. And also, we, we then decided not to shelve it, but we did a, a pilot uh, of 47 schools uh, last year. So that pilot um, is now completed. And I assume, I'm, obviously, I'm not minister anymore, yeah. but I assume that the data from that pilot was used in order to make sure that the new system would work. So that would, they were the two reasons for, for not doing it that year. So do you think it's a good idea what they're doing? Say, if you go back to that issue of special needs assistance, and I think Lorraine might go into the more granular detail of what precisely they're for. There were just under 3,000 in 2001, which we agree, I think we all, was a low base. But it's now over 13,000. Yeah, I mean, just first of all, the the new system is only about resource teachers. There is a a review going on side by side in relation to special needs assistance. That was announced in September 2016 by the current minister. So, um, sorry, by by Minister Richard Bruton at the time. Yeah. So that... um, that review is ongoing in relation to SNAs, but the new model is 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 resource teachers. So you know, there's the two different. It, it is quite complicated. Yeah, we get Lorraine to tell us the difference. What yeah. happened was, I, I suppose every year, um, 
the special education needs organisers, the CNOs, as they're commonly known, um, they, we would get an estimate from the National Council, um, it's the same now as it was when I was Minister, uh, around the time of the budget. So you would allocate a certain amount of money for um, SNAs and resource teachers. But certainly the two years when I was Minister, and I know it happened last year as well, it came in the, in the summertime, you actually found out that you needed more. And for example, in July, I think it was July 2015, I, had to, I announced an extra 610 special needs assistance. And again, that would have followed on after I stopped being minister. Mm. So uh, there was a further needs assessment uh, which had to be paid for and had to be argued at Cabinet uh, to get the funding, uh, you know, uh, during the summer as well. So I, the, the review in relation to SNAs is designed to figure out exactly what the needs going to be and to make sure that there are outcomes from the, the SNAs in the schools as well. And then just finally, maybe that larger point, you know, so I framed this discussion and the deeper the public expenditure and reform department has refra- has reframed this discussion as we're spending more on special needs education than we are on higher education the implication being that's crazy well, you I, know philosophically what's your yeah. view on that well i don't think it's crazy um, because you know it, i have a very firm view that if you don't get a good start in education then you're never going to get to higher education mm. um you know that's why i'm, I'm a very strong believer in early childhood education as well um now that the um the figure that uh, that you quote um i think it's about 15% of the total departmental budget at least it, it was in my time but that includes, as well as the resource teachers, SNAs, etc., it also includes the special transport arrangements, building adaptations, uh, and there's enhanced capitation for special schools. Um, it also includes the National Education Psychological Service. Um, so it's not just for SNAs and uh, resource teachers. That There's a lot of other elements to it as well. And I suppose the reality is that quite a large proportion of children have some level of, of special need. You know, that might be very mild, um, but it also might be, you know, a, a greater need. And I would be a strong advocate that you need to concentrate on giving children everything you can give in the early years. And then actually it will save you money later on um, in terms of supports that, that people will need in later life. OK, Lorraine Dempsey, just on that technical technical thing, what is the difference between a special needs assistant and, a, and resource teaching? It's extremely, it's, it's absolutely opposite ends of difference. Um, so a resource teacher and learning support teacher, which most people might have heard of, are actually professionally trained teachers. They're qualified. Um, they look after the educational needs like they're typically mainstream class teachers. There's no difference between them professionally. They just allocate who's going to do the resource teaching, who's going to be the learning support teacher for this year. And teachers may move around within a school in those roles. So there's not um, uh, sort of any specialist additional training required to take up those roles. And indeed, the take up of additional training and special educational needs is quite low. And that's concern to the system. Special needs assistants, on the other hand, um, have a minimum entry qualification of three Ds at inter junior cert. They're non-qualified, non-professional. That's not to say that they don't work as professionals. Um, SNAs, if they want to uh, take up a special needs assistance course, they do it at their own expense. And um, we do know that there's SNAs in the system who've got masters in psychology under their belt. But again, 
that's just all at their own expense. But to walk into an SNA interview in your local school, you don't need any qualifications. And that's one of the problems, I suppose, with the SNA system is we don't really know much about the quality of people working with our children and um, we don't really know whether there's better outcomes because of having this type of support. Um, as Janice Sullivan mentioned, there are actually two um, models being reviewed and looked at. One is only in relation to additional teaching. So that's what's being rolled out in September. I mean, I suppose the department were under pressure to roll this out sooner because there was actually high court cases taken um, with families who children with Down syndrome whose level of intellectual disability was mild. And under a mild intellectual disability diagnosis or category, you could just get some additional teaching support from a learning support teacher in the school. There wasn't anything specifically allocated to that child Um, and the high court cases were arguing that these children had significant learning needs and that they should be given access to resource teaching. Now, if those same children with Down syndrome had had a moderate to severe level of intellectual disability, they would have qualified for a prescribed number of hours given to the school for resource teaching. I remember Brendan O'Connor in the Sunday Independent writing about this. His daughter is Down syndrome and she was going for some assessment and he said, you found yourself in this situation where you were actually hoping the diagnosis was bad because that would entitle you to more. And if it came back mild, while you were obviously relieved your daughter was only mild, that had a serious effect on what you became Well, it's one to. of the rationales for bringing in the new model, which came from a report, a review of the special education system, which had 27 recommendations. And only one of the recommendations was to bring in a model that would be based around providing additional teaching support on the child's educational needs, not on the basis of their diagnosis. And I'm sure Coleman will allude to how you can have two children with the same diagnosis, but entirely different needs. So from that perspective, as an organisation, we would have been supporting the introduction of this model and from a legal perspective with, you know, high court cases, this model was going to fit and meet the needs of those children irrespective of what category or label they fell into. So our system did drive, you know, the the need to get a certain diagnosis. Yeah, it's called diagnosis for dollars, they call it. It's very crass, you know, and, and I think... Sometimes it might be all right for parents themselves to speak amongst themselves as this pressure maybe from a school principal to say, look, uh, my child's been diagnosed with sensory processing disorder and the principal saying, well, that's no good to me. I can't apply for any resources based on that. Is there any chance they'd have a diagnosis of autism? And we can't ignore that this has happened, um, albeit on a low level. We can't ignore that, you know, the current system meant that if your child was mild, they got a bit of teaching support. And if they were moderate to severe, they got a prescribed level of teaching support. But that didn't really reflect whatever the complexity of that child was. Now, if the system had just reacted to those high court cases for children with Down syndrome and give all children with Down syndrome resource hours, along with children with autism, children with moderate, moderate severe behavioural difficulties, um, hearing and visual impairments and specific speech and language impairments, like a, literally a prescription of hours per diagnosis. Well, then you would have had in another year or two another high court case of a child with maybe global developmental delay who had significant learning needs but didn't get a prescribed number of hours. So the system, rightly so, is putting in place something based around the child's individual learning needs. Now, how that system rolls out and the supports around it are contentious. They'd be contentious with us, the teachers' unions. For example, those 47 pilot schools mentioned did. There was really good learning from that. The the tools 
around how this model will work in schools were kind of refined as a result of the findings. But those 47 schools got significant external support scaffolded around them from the Special Educational Support Service, from the National Educational Psychology Service. So they were supported in bringing in this new model. Mm. We're now going to move from 47 schools to over 3,000 schools with the same existing number of staff and these additional agencies expected to support them. And that may mean that schools are going to find difficulty in creating learning plans for children. They're still going to find difficulties in accessing health-related supports which would improve their educational outcomes. So if you have a child with speech and language difficulties, they may have a problem in school around behaviour because they can't express themselves. It's not because they're a bold child, but it's arising from a speech and language difficulty. And if they're not getting input from health, there's going to be a behavioural problem in the classroom. And that's where then, you know, it's de facto right, apply for an SNA. Now, what you're really applying for is somebody who's totally unqualified to look after the behavioural needs of that child with no skill sets to actually mm. do something productive around it because they don't have the background. Um, and SNAs themselves are screaming out for training and the Department of Education doesn't fund any training for them. Now, and just on <clears throat> that um, kind of philosophical, political issue of the $1.68 billion, you can understand them sitting in the Department of Public End Expenditure and Reform looking at these court cases, these rights, the moral issue of these children are entitled to get the best education possible and that early intervention may have, you know, a very productive outcome in the end. But really, when we have that figure of one in four may have some kind of difficulty, you're looking at the blank check. You can understand someone has to put the brakes on this somewhere and say, we can't we can't keep writing these checks. Well, I suppose what we've heard is we have come from a very low base. So yeah. they might be alarmed, but nobody else is. I mean, if we go right back to the kind of, you know, the 1990s, um, there was only 200 resource teachers in the system and we now have about 13,000. Yeah. Um, there was a very interesting paper written by Professor Desmond Swan back in 2000 who identified the history of education for children with disabilities in Ireland in three sort of contexts. There was the era of neglect and denial and that's where children really were hidden away. They were in hospitals, they were in mental asylums, they were um, just warehoused but they weren't educated and it really wasn't until the 1960s that the government sort of started looking at educating children with any level of disability and then they started to set up special schools. So the middle era was special schools. So by I think the 1990s there was about 100 special schools set up but these kids weren't mainstreamed. Now the era that we're in now is about integration and inclusion and that does cost money because now these children are the one in four in every mainstream class in Ireland. And Janice Sullivan, come back to you on that. Uh, for me, I was looking at all of these papers, both from the Department of Education and Deeper, and nowhere could I see any examination as to a, an evidence-based measure of whether or not this actually works. Yeah, well, I think that is partly why the SNA um, examination, the review is going on. Uh, and the, the work that's already been done now in, res in relation to resource teaching, the National Council for Special Education would have looked at the results area. Um, because, I mean, ideally what you want to do in any educational situation is to 
make the child more independent if you like you know to give the child the support when they need it and some children will always need support yeah and sorry and and one of the points the report was making actually was by giving them an SNA you Mm. might actually be making them more dependent on help and I I, I actually support the idea that that needs to be looked at because um, it's not good for children to to think that they can't do things that they actually can do you know so ideally you should be you know, if if they're going to be able to, whatever it might be, um, going to be able to do it for themselves, then that should be part of the role of the SNA to bring them to a situation where they can do it for themselves. So that's why I do think the SNA thing, and I agree with Lorraine, um, there needs to be a full examination and indeed the, the issue around uh, offering training. Um, the other thing I agree with Lorraine in is around, uh, or maybe you said it yourself, Sarah, around the, the integration of speech and language, for example. Um, this is something that we started to try to do some work on as well, to actually bring that in to coordinate uh, the HSE responsibilities, which speech and language would be uh, in that area, and actually bring it in with the school to have some kind of seamless, get rid of the silos between the different departments, because the child is the child, and the child's needs are the child's needs. So really, you know, it, it's it, it isn't good to have them all separately catered for. And obviously there are delays for, for okay. speech and language and, as well. And finally, Jan, and I'll let you go after this then. You know, so this review has been ordered, this system has been proposed, but I can see pushback coming from two sides. Number one, the INTO particularly, the teachers' unions, who... You know, they don't want to have their teachers in classrooms where the system is going to change and maybe they're not going to have that SNN, SNA there to help them with a particular child who might in particular have behavioural difficulties. And the other one would be from the middle class parents who can no longer buy their way into extra help because the new system is really going to try and mitigate against that class discrimination that there was and instead profile the poorer schools and help them. Do you think this will actually get through in the face of those two pretty powerful lobby vocal groups? Well, first of all, I would say that in these situations, you have to do what's right. You know, yeah. so even if there is pushback, um, I think the pushback has to be resisted. And that was, you know, that would I would very much support um, doing if, if it's the right thing to do. Uh, and I think it is. Um, I, I think, the, I mean, there has been a lot of consultation, including with the INTO uh, and the other teachers unions where it's in the post-primary system. So um, I I would be surprised at this stage if there's pushback from the INTO. But I I think parents, you know, are concerned that maybe their their own child will lose support. But the system is designed to genuinely put the support in where it's needed, where the where the children need it. And I mean, from the teacher's perspective, it's not good for a teacher to have four SNAs in their classroom, for example. You know, I mean, yeah, there, there's there's benefit to the teachers as well if the SNAs um, are there when they're needed and that they can you know they can move from child to child if a child has a certain level of need but doesn't need them all day long so uh, I actually think that you know it it should be a positive for teachers as well Uh, and above all we want it to be a positive for the children. Okay Jan O'Sullivan Labour Party TD former Minister for Education many thanks for joining us this morning we're talking about the huge rise in the cost of special needs education and in studio with me this morning Carlo Bryan is the education editor of the Irish Times Coleman Nocter is a child and adolescent psychotherapist at St. Patrick's Hospital and Lorraine Dempsey is chairperson of the Special Needs Parents Association so Coleman Nocter thank you for your patience Um, we've been going through the costs of all of this But what the Department of Public Expenditure and uh, Reform highlighted in the report that they issued in all of this last week is a massive jump, an 83% jump in the number of pupils presenting to schools with the diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder just in the last five years. Um, What's going on? 
Um, I, I think there's an increased awareness. Obviously, we we put that in in first. I mean, um, for me, mental health itself is complex, and we don't like this idea that it's complex, but it is. Um, and you know, we'd we'd like to be able to tick a box and say all these kids with Aspergers are the same, all the kids with autism are the same. They're not. There's a varying degree of difficulty and and impeding someone's functioning. And I've heard numerous arguments that you know we never had ASD in my day, uh, yeah. and. And we did. And I can tell you the three guys in my class who probably were, but they weren't highlighted as needing extra support. They kind of got on with it. And there's a kind of a sense of, are we making a problem that isn't there? Um, For me, there's a slight truth in that. But for me, the school landscape today is vastly different than anything we would ever have experienced before. It is way more, more socially complex. It is far more competitive. And where, children, where we see somebody with a deficit is the gap between what we see as normal and the children that are in our classrooms so who are not uh, keeping up socially, keeping up emotionally. If we think about what is ASD and autism, if you think about development, we all develop on different trajectories. So we develop physically, emotionally, socially, psychologically. And these maturity levels are variant. They're, they're yeah. diverse. They, they change. And the child with the, the pervasive developmental delay, which is the umbrella term for both autism and, and ASD, the trajectory of perhaps social and emotional and kind of sensory integration is way, way slower. Now, the pace of gap between it and it, the, your culture, your peers and your environment will highlight the the oddities or the eccentricities that stand out. And they're the things that we we jump to resource for, is, is where there's a gap where this kid isn't fitting with the culture of the classroom. And so some in very more kind of severe cases, we'll see it in early Montessori school where there'll be unusual behaviours and it might be highlighted there. For other children, an ASD diagnosis may not come until they hit secondary school where that escalation of the social gap massives widen, widens massively and so the child is experiencing a much, much di- different kind of leap of faith. Children who can be scaffolded through primary school um, with a very close kind of maybe a rural school, small yeah. numbers might manage fine but then they go to that big school and it's just completely lost in terms of reading social nuances, following structure, you know, and and again, it's, it's the complexity of of these presentations demands a complexity of assessment. So two things that interest me. One is age of diagnosis and the other one is this uh, concept of the spectrum. And now maybe it's just, and and I'm always fearful of sounding a bit Neanderthal when it comes to these conversations, but say in my family, we would have had key people in each group of the family who had delayed development in certain ways, be it speaking, um, bedwetting, you know, all kinds of things. But there was very much an attitude taken, just wait, you know, it'll even out. They'll come round. And they did. Now the culture is early intervention. Get in there quick and sort out a developmental problem. But is there a risk of diagnosing a four-year-old with a condition when maybe they're just a bit behind and they'll get there. There's actually not. Um, right. Because it's pervasive developmental delay. It's not just a kid who's wetting the bed at seven. They yeah. must have, you have autism. There's a yeah. multitude of reasons why that child might be experiencing that behaviour. But what what an, a, an assessment is, is, is assessing the collection of presentations, both at home, in school, across you know their, their sleep habits, their eating habits, their social habits. And it's the collection of 
symptoms that create where you place somebody on the spectrum. But can a label be damaging? Um, yes, of course it can. I mean, I mean the, 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 the pop, it's a popular fashionable conversation about overdiagnosis mm. um, and mental health gets a big hit for that. You know, we have conditions like obsessional defiant disorder, which is children who say no a lot. And, and there's a big issue that that's, you know, these kids are trying to be, they're booking against the control and we should get behind them. But these children are not functioning. They're not getting by. They're getting expelled. They're spending weeks at home and not in school and they're not able to fit with perhaps the narrow range of what is acceptable within the school yeah, environment. Yeah, and I want to get but, on to that. But, but the, the issue of of overdiagnosis is not just a mental health issue. You know, we have, we've no longer sweaty feet, we've hyperacidosis. You know, <laughs> yeah, we, yeah. we were pathologizing lots and lots of behaviours. Our food allergies are off the charts as well. Um, you know, and so, although I'm not comparing the two, but there's a, there is a kind of a hyper-awareness that, and it's, it's, it's anxiety. We live in a hugely anxious culture. We, we live in a culture where we've never had more choice we have the tyranny of choice. And for a child who has Asperger's, that choice might be something that would really agitate them. And, you know, when, you know, there is a tyranny of choice. When we grew up, we had RT1 and RT2 and we watched it with, you know, I watched Bosco till I was 12, (laughs) not because I loved it, because there was nothing else on, you know, whereas now I have 950 channels. All I ever say is there's nothing on telly and I, I get adult by, you know, that kind of tyranny of choice. For a child who who has who struggles with anxiety, all that choice, all that sensory exposure, all that competitiveness, and childhood is shrinking. You know, we have conditions in psychiatry that we would traditionally have seen in second year and third year now emerging in fifth class. So you have children in fifth class talking about body image and issues around food and intimacy, sexuality, all these conversations, which making the vulnerable child stick out, really not able to integrate into the environment that is fundamentally different. An environment that would have perhaps accepted and nurtured a child 20, 30 years ago, isn't, that child is now sticking out like a sore thumb. But it's not just the children with Asperger's who are sticking out like sore thumbs, children who just might have a, a different social preference, somebody who might be described as quirky, somebody who might have a different way, are not fitting into the narrow culture that sometimes schools promote. And then this child is presenting as a problem. Yeah. And, and I just want to finish on this point because mm. I know you're coming. Mm. Not every child who has a problem has a diagnosis. So from the point of view of everything is on a spectrum when it comes to mental health, we don't, we cannot blood test for anything. We cannot x-ray for it and say, you have depression and you don't. We all have moods which change and it's the nature to which that impedes our functioning that brings it to the attention of professionals. But we're looking, we rely solely on observation of someone's emotion, cognition and behaviour. What you think, what you see and what you do. And we gather all that information and make a guesstimate at what we think that is best. And we get hammered for it because <laughs> uh, it's, you know, it's labeling people and everything else. But it is, we don't have the laboratory test in any of this that other professionals, like if you were coming in for, I don't know, arthritis or some sort of blood condition, we can test for that and say, well, you have it. But even within that, there's a spectrum of different disabilities within that. So the, the, we're, we're more open to scrutiny within psychiatry. There are people who would say that ADHD doesn't even exist, that it's an issue of parenting and they will challenge us on all of that. To just get back to one point, which is the issue around the diagnosis for dollars. Um, I think there certainly is a case that where a child's resources is dependent on the diagnosis. So you get this form to tick 
to say this kid has this. If they if they if they qualify as having Asperger's syndrome, then they'll get something. If they don't have it, they don't. And you know, you know, this child is going to struggle. And you know, th- there is a, a kind of a an urge, almost like an I don't know, like an insurance form. Like you get four grand if you break your wrist, and five grand if you this. That you're trying to. F- to support the child as best as possible. It's better to look at resources than look for it. Um, but I know no parent who has got a diagnosis of Asperger's or autism where there's fist pumping and jubilation and whooping and wooing. It is a, a relief to realise that your child's behaviour that is really challenging and made their life miserable, it's a relief to hear that it's not because you're a bad parent, that there's something else at play here. But it's a relief not like a, a cold tap on a burn, but a, an axe being removed from your head. Yeah, but isn't that just the point? Because, you know, I take that point that parents don't want this diagnosis, but actually isn't that relief just the issue? That I remember Archbishop Connell, Desmond Connell, getting into trouble years ago when he talked about the planned child and the pressure that was on the planned child. That you got married, you bought the house, you did it up and then you had your your child and you had this vision of this wonderful child that you were going to have. And then the child is born and it starts not to measure up to that very high standard you've just talked about. And is it actually easier to take the news your child has Asperger's, it's one or two on the spectrum, but there's a condition rather than your child's different. They're average. They have this difficult personality, you know, and that's how it is. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I think that's a popular discourse that it is. An ex- is that a way of saying I'm wrong? I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't see it. I haven't. Right. I, I don't see somebody. I, I see people coming looking for diagnosis for sure. Uh, we want to know what this is. And, you know, again, in psychiatry and mental health, we get hammered for giving diagnosis but there is a consumerism that is different to before where people come and say I've googled this I know I have abandonment issues but I'm just here for you to tell me that I have those (laughs) and it's much like the GP and the over prescribing of antibiotics people don't leave with an antibiotic if they're told you know you just calpol and neurofen they feel cheated out of their 60 euro for that and so there is of course there's a, a demand for something to explain why my child is having these difficulties but generally it's, it, it would be the urban myth is that getting these resources or getting these assessments is easy. It is absolutely not. Anyone who thinks that there's this massive resources out there and it's a big pot and if you are wealthy enough, you can get this thing and you'll be you know supported for the rest of your life and it'll give you an excuse for your child's laziness or whatever. That's utter rubbish. Right. It is really difficult to get resources. I, I have two nephews who have autism and Asperger's and I know the 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 grit and fight that my sister goes through every day to get them. There's no probably problem getting diagnosis, but getting services afterwards that will support you. Um, and and it's not just an educational support. These children need health support. They need home support. They need social supports. And so, you know, um, it it's it. This is a battle that you will continue for the next number of years. So, Carlo Bryan, um. So we have this growing awareness. We know now these children need these interventions. And yet this cost is quite extraordinary. Is this just a form of moral progress? And governments are just going to have to get used to the fact that, yeah, this is going to cost more than third level education. Yeah. And I, <clears throat> I think the comparison with third level is interesting. You know, yeah. Because, because I wouldn't really start comparing us or comparing special ed 
with third level because the third level budget has been hacked away for the past decade. Uh, it's cut by about a third. Uh, most universities are generating most of their income privately. So bear in mind, the third level budget has been shrinking. In fact, if you look at further education and training, when you add in the employment supports, that budget is bigger than third level. So, you know, let's, I wouldn't get too hung up on I, the third level I comparison. think the reason, um, perhaps because it was used, is that intuitively we would say, well, people who have a special educational need are a minority. Whereas everybody goes to third level education now. So is it reasonable to spend this massive amount of money on this small minority? And also people, I think, don't see the return of this because it's yeah. it's long term, you know. And if you look at even early intervention in preschool for regular kids, you know, there's been there's a famous Perry preschool study, which they did over a 40 year period. And they estimated that for every dollar that they invested in early years intervention for normal regular kids you got about a seven dollar return and there's all other research would also show that you can multiply that again whether they're children with disabilities so the return is would be many factors of what we're do you think in. that study still holds up i know that's a very um commonly quoted one. Oh, absolutely and it was the basis uh, for our investment in early years education because the returns are very obvious and they're dramatic and as i said they they um show me any other sector of public spending where you do get that kind of return, you know. But I can completely see, you know, people get third level. I said, we've all been there. Yeah. And we we, we, we kind of, it's easy to conceptualise that for, for special education. It's different. And another factor to look at is, I know people may feel alarmed as well at uh, some of the figures that were quoted in, in this Department of Public Expenditure report. Um, but also bear in mind that when you look at the incidence of these special or additional needs, we're not out of line with many European countries. So you look at the UK or the Netherlands, educationally, it's about 25, 26% of kids have special or additional needs. I think here we're at about 25%. So we would seem to be bang on in terms of what many of our neighbours are experiencing. Now, I have to take a break, but I want to just put one more point to you, and that's the class issue and how the proposed new system might mitigate the class issue, you know, because mm. it's absolutely documented that these diagnoses are far higher in affluent areas, you know, most starkly, say, South County Dublin versus um, Dublin West. And... Um, uh, you know, and then you have schools that might have a lot of traveller children, poor children. They should benefit from this. Do you see much middle class pushback coming? I think that the system is designed that no school is going to lose any resources, at least for the initial years of this. So you're not going to see yeah. any immediate pushback. But I could certainly see potentially over time um, affluent middle class schools potentially losing resources. And you could see some fight back then on that. And you could see some controversy. And um, and I guess th these are the broader issues, you know, it, it, like if you if we're serious about providing equality of opportunity, then there has to be a surrendering of privilege as well to do that. And that's the question. Are people ready to make that jump as well? Well, the record, I think, has showed no, but we'll see how it goes. Coleman, you wanted to make a quick point there just before our break. I just think on yeah. the affluence point, I mean, mm. there was a, I don't know whether this is an urban middle or I might be able to, so for years, if you wanted a child to get a, a, a psychological assessment, we were told there's two per school 
that you're that you're allocated and it's the squeaky wheel syndrome so the most troublesome child is the only one that gets that so parents just went off and got their private assessment if they could the parents who couldn't didn't um and so there was you know that that, that culture of of accessibility was down to an absolutely kind of tiny amount of resource that was being made available to, to schools. Right. And in some of the, the disadvantaged schools, and I remember having a chat with a young boy once about offering him an SNA and culturally he absolutely did not want that. Oh, you know, he was absolutely... yeah. And I, I quote his term, he said, I don't want any Mongo minder. You know, and from the point of view of it would have been absolute stigma. social stigma about having an SNA. And he said, I won't go into school if one is in there. You know, so there's all these different, again, these kind of intricacies that we can't just say this is the answer that sticky plaster that match, matches that cut. For some kids, the SNA is brilliant. For some, it's not. For some, resource teaching is absolutely necessary. For some, it's not. But for too long, we've just had these kind of crude measurement of you have a need. This is what you're entitled to. This is the answer. And I think the answer in the plan is to be more specific to tailor the needs. So it's it's bang for your book that you're spending it in the right areas rather than in an area where it's resisted. Lorraine, we've been talking about this increased cost and um, this report by the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform and they're concerned about a huge jump in the diagnosis, particularly for children with autism spectrum disorder um, and that this situation has arisen of diagnosis for dollars, that you need to diagnose a child with a particular level of a particular condition in order to be entitled to some kind of extra resources in the school an SNA or a resource teacher. You're concerned about that narrative. Yeah, I suppose yeah. the narrative for the last yeah. two or three years around this yeah. diagnosis for dollars and labelling yeah. of children um, and particularly around the sort of rich versus poor access um, yeah. has been totally misrepresented. Um, Coleman just alluded to um, educational psychologists um, that assessments, each school would have two assessments and it would typically be the child who didn't have any access to supports already would get that educational assessment but there could have eight on the list within a school. So obviously if you are in an affluent area like South County Dublin you may have had the means to fork out anything up to €1,200 for an assessment. Therefore the school could put in the application for the additional supports. Um, If you were in a poor area it was argued that look children lost out and parents couldn't afford the assessments. That didn't mean that they didn't go and get the assessments. St. Vincent de Paul would actually attest to handing out thousands of euros to families in poor socioeconomic areas to get private psychological assessments for their children. So it wasn't that they weren't getting them, they were finding any means, money lenders, St. Vincent de Paul, relatives, scrounging, just to ensure that their child was assessed and that they could then access some additional educational supports. So the system drove this issue. It's not my Johnny needs to get the best in school because these children are genuinely presenting with difficulties irrespective of what financial background they're coming from. It's just the pathways to getting the supports were different because we have so few educational psychologists available to the system. And we had a system whereby you needed a diagnosis to get the educational support. We are changing that from September. You won't need the diagnosis to get the educational support. That doesn't mean that we're moving away from diagnosis, though. And this is another misconception, particularly amongst parents and the dialogue that we're trying to stop diagnosing children. And this model is to hide the numbers and particularly in relation to autism. So we don't start tracking the numbers of autism. It's not. It's just saying that the school does not have to wait 
for you to get an assessment and a diagnosis for your child before they can say, look, we know Johnny has a real difficulty in class. They're very behind and um, they're, you know, here are the difficulties they're expressing, but we can't help them until we get on paper sanctioning to provide it. Whereas now they can say, listen, we need to sit down, have a meeting and plan around Johnny's learning needs and put in a programme to support them. Uh, we don't have to wait now to apply at a specific time of the year for an allocation because it's built in through our school profile. Now, Johnny may still benefit from that diagnosis of autism or specific speech and language impairment, or whatever the diagnosis is, but it should inform the programmes around Johnny. Right. Now, but say, going back to the issue of diagnosis, now your daughter has cerebral palsy, um, you know, and that's something I suppose we can see. It's right? a box ticked on a form. Yeah. Now, but the and the estimate is and and it's actually it's five percent or something of, of of primary school children you know need these special needs that the numbers proportionately are actually quite small but there is this estimate that one in four children may have some kind of physical learning intellectual or behavioural difficulty and going back to a point Coleman was making earlier that how much schools have changed and societies have changed and this rigidity is it a case that a lot of these children. It's not that they need particular help. It's that the whole system is so rigid. Maybe the system in a classroom needs to change in some way that it can accommodate different kinds of behaviours, approaches to learning. Not every child can sit there and be taught something from a board and recite it back and do their homework perfectly. But certainly in my experience, school is a very, very, very rigid place. And this is often more about conformity rather than the problem of a child. But there's a few things there. One of the things with this new model is it's going to try and drive a culture change within school. So it's now saying, look, okay, we don't have the security knowing that Johnny's autism and he's getting four hours and 15 minutes of resource hours. Uh, Rihanna has cerebral palsy. She's going to get three and a half hours. We won't have the security in knowing the quantity we have to kind of start moving to what are we going to do to address your children's learning needs in a whole school context. So the schools are being told, here's your bulk allocation of hours. Now work within your whole school population on a class level, on an individual child level. So do you think it will level. drive a culture change? It will. So, for example, some children in class are just that slow learners. They need a little bit of input to bring them up to speed developmentally. And then it's not maybe going to be an ongoing problem. We have children where English is a, f- a second language to them. How can you learn a curriculum when you can't even understand what's written in front of you? So the new model is actually supposed to drive sort of a more whole school support so that teachers will now come into the classroom and work together as opposed to constantly taking children out. Oh, yeah. Then they might work in a group with the same group of children. And then maybe some of those children need more intensive support where they might take those out individually later in the day. So... It's supposed to drive this kind of change within the school to address all children's learning needs. But I suppose one of the things that we have to look out for, and again, going back to health related support, the HSC, you know, developmental services across primary care, across the disability services are on their knees because of lack of therapists within teams. They cannot provide the school with what they need to support the child. Right. Well, change is coming, that's for sure. And that was Lorraine Dempsey, chairperson of the Special Needs Parents Association. And also in studio with me was Carlo Bryan and Coleman Nocter. That is it for this morning. Many thanks to Aidan McKelvey, who researched and produced. And thank you for listening.